when we all get to heaven, not a single one of us in this room deserve to be in heaven. Not a single one of us in this room are worthy. But the wonderful thing is, is that every single person in this room can be in heaven. There is no reason except my decision that can keep me from there. And what we want to think about tonight is that very grace and mercy and long-suffering of our God by which He renders us through His Son's blood worthy to be with Him. We're talking in this series about repentance, about returning to the Lord. And what we are trying to stress is that when it comes time for us to take seriously our soul's destination, for us to seriously confront eternity and what we are doing in view of eternity, we're thinking about returning to the Lord not in hypocrisy, not in a superficial way such that we simply want to cover over sin, or that we simply want to deal with the fallout of sin, or that we simply want to appear righteous before others, or somehow return or repent in such a way that we feel like our standing has been regained and now we feel good about ourselves personally, but yet no lasting changes have been made. We're talking about true repentance. Repentance that strips off the mask of hypocrisy, tears away the veneer of self-righteousness, and is serious about bringing forth the fruits of repentance. And the way that we want to approach that this evening is thinking about the role of prayer and prayers of penitence in our return to the Lord. And what we want to focus on is twofold. On the one hand, we want to think about prayer as a sense, a procedure itself by which we approach God and we petition His favor and His forgiveness. But we also want to look at prayer from the standpoint of a discipline. It is a spiritual training in which by doing the very act itself, we are better training and preparing ourselves for our walk with the Lord. And the way I want to do that is very simple. I want to begin by thinking about what I would think is, in a sense, a, a contradiction in the Scriptures. Not truly such, but it appears that way. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I found it hard to reconcile the fact that the very man who committed adultery and committed great deception and was involved in a conspiracy to commit murder and then was fine with that for a year until he was confronted is the very man who was the sweet psalmist of Israel and was inspired to write such soul-stirring psalms of not only penitence, but of a relationship with God. And so what we want to do is to look at three of the psalms of David, three psalms of penitence, and learn our standing before God when it comes to the matter of praying for forgiveness. And so what we are looking at tonight is, it may be, that there are different circumstances we find ourselves in. It may be that we awaken out of the nightmare that sin has been in our lives, and we come to our senses, and maybe it's some set of circumstances, maybe it's the words of a good brother or sister in Christ who come to us and help us, or maybe it is just the time where I will break free from this world and actually take some time in His Word, and I come to realize that I have been in stubborn rebellion against God, and I must have for His forgiveness. Or it may be the case that, as a general rule, we are trying to live the life, and generally speaking, we are successful in walking with the Lord and prospering in that, but we have a momentary time of weakness. We have a lapse in our judgment, and then we feel the sting of that guilt, and thus we also know 
that we need to pray to the Lord. We need to be careful that in these prayers, they don't become simply just a matter of something I say, and then that then becomes a salve for my soul to make me feel good, to soothe me for the moment, but yet leaves me as I was. It is God's plan that prayers of repentance serve as a discipline in godliness. And so our lesson is going to be very simple. We're going to look through these three psalms, and then we're going to think about the application of the principles that we'll see in these psalms. And the way that we want to kind of view this lesson is what I view the role of the preacher ultimately is, and that is you're a tour guide. You know, people come to see the sights, all right? They come to take that in and take that experience. The tour guide kind of recedes in the background, and you just want to accentuate what it is that people have come to see. And that's the approach that we want to take going through these psalms. So let's first turn together to Psalm 38. Psalm 38. What we're going to see in these three psalms is what I think is a progression. Now, we can't prove it, and there's no way of going and ascertaining this for sure, but it seems to me that these three psalms of David are in reference to the moment and the series of sins that he committed with Bathsheba and against Uzziah and that the prophet Nathan confronted him with. Now, certainly there are other sins, other moments of weakness in David's life, but I tend to think these psalms really rally around that moment. And what we're going to see is a progression in each of these three. In Psalm 38, I see the primary theme of awakening. Here's the psalmist that has now lifted up his eyes, and he realizes, I am in an absolute mess, and I have to have God if I'm going to make it out of this. So let's start reading together. The first ten verses, the psalmist is describing the overwhelming burden that the guilt of sin is. Look in verse 1. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. For my loins are full of inflammation and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pants, my strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. The psalmist begins with the recognition and the request that God not deal with him as he deserves. As he describes the Lord's wrath and contemplates God's judgment upon him, he pictures God as one who is an archer, who might fire arrows that will pierce him. And as we learn from the rest of the Psalms and really throughout the rest of Scripture, often God's arrows are compared to the lightning. And so here is the psalmist that pictures the wrath of God like a very lightning bolt that would pierce and rend the sky, rends his heart, and tears him open. And he says, your hand presses me down. The hand of God is big and it is strong. And when it is applied to deliver his people, it is glorious in its deliverance. When it is applied in chastisement of his people, it is terrible. And so here, guilt of the psalmist 
and the guilt he feels inside that he carries around with him, he pictures it like a disease, like a leprosy, or like a cancer, a gangrene that is eating him, and that that guilt will simply grow and grow and eat him. And as we see pictured in verses 3 through 8, he describes it's into my marrow, it's a burden upon me. And have we not all been there at some point where we feel like we try to fool ourselves and set sin aside and put it in the back of our minds and we're going to go through our day, go through our business, and yet we can't truly concentrate, we can't truly enjoy the good things of life because we know deep down none of this matters. These joys that I'm experiencing, they're so deceptive. Not all is right and my soul is in jeopardy before God. But yet, amid all of this, notice back again to verse 9. Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. This sighing here is the gasp, the expression, almost a moan of sorrow. And this really is put in contrast to the parallel before it. My desire is before you. That word desire is translated quite variously in the scriptures sometimes this word is used in a negative sense to refer to lust to a desire that catches fire in your heart and it dominates you and it moves you but here it's used i believe in a positive sense what the psalmist is saying is that yes i realize i've made mistakes i realize that i have done things that have justly earned the lord's wrath and yet amid that he is not giving up on his relationship with God. Have you not been there before in which you realize, what have I done? How could I have said that? How could I have done that? Why was that? That's not me. And you realize amid all that, I want God. I want the Lord. I don't want that to be the real me. That's not my story. That's not my life. I want something different. I want what the Lord has in store for me. And so the psalmist here is pouring out his heart to the Lord in that sense. And if you go on and notice as he goes on to say in verses 11 and 12, he describes how no one is there to help him and assist him. It has to be God. Uh, look to verse 11. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my relatives stand afar off. Those also who seek my life lay, lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction and plan deception all the day long. Do you see the picture here? It's twofold. On the one hand, the psalmist realizes that those who should be here to help me, my family, my loved ones, my friends, those who also love the Lord perhaps, he says, in this circumstance, my loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague. And I think the idea here is that the psalmist is saying that about them, not to their commendation. And the idea is that just like they might see someone with a contagion, and you stand back so as not to catch that, they see his sin, they see his predicament, and they abandon him. And when that happens, sometimes that hurts. But that can't affect my relationship with God. I cannot let external circumstances or how people might rightly or wrongly deal with something impact my standing between me and God. Well, on the one hand, his loved ones are, and friends are fleeing him when in need. On the other hand, his enemies are closing in. 
Here is a picture of a pack of animals, predators. They have encircled the psalmist. And truly, in David's life, there were moments when he was down, and it was at these moments that certainly there were enemies that tried to kick him while he was down. Now, you might think to yourself, well, I don't have enemies like that today. You know, I don't have anyone who just wakes up in the morning and their goal is to bring me down or to kick me while I'm down. Well, maybe not true among other human beings, but as the apostle informs us in First Peter chapter five and verse eight, your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we've had the experience before, I think most of us of any years, that when we realize my heart's not right with God. And I've got to make things right. You know, there are moments in life where we realize my face is in the dust. I've been knocked down. I've let life and temptation and sin bring me down. It's at those moments that Satan often, to gloat and to try and finish the job, he will kneel down beside us and he will whisper the most terrible things in our ears. You're down here again. You were not long ago. Why don't you just stay down? It's easier this way. If you try and get up, you won't make it. They won't accept you. You'll be back down here again. Just stay. And it's at these moments that we must have the same mindset as the psalmist in verses 13 and 14. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear. I am like a mute who does not open his mouth. Thus, I am like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth is no response. So when we hear these whispers of Satan, these deceptions, give in, give up, this is the real you. Why don't you just relax and start living like it and embrace it? In those moments, the psalmist says, I'm not listening. I don't hear that. I am like a mute. I don't respond to that. I am incapable of responding in like. Instead, in verse 15, he is going to turn to God. Let's read together as he, through the rest of the psalm, turns to the Lord for help and, and resorts to him for his only plea. Let's look together beginning in verse 15. For in you, O Lord, I hope. You will hear, O Lord my God. For I said, hear me, lest they rejoice over me, lest when my foot slips they exalt themselves against me. For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I will declare my iniquity, I will be in anguish over my sin. But my enemies are vigorous, and they are strong. And those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. Those also who render evil for good, they are my adversaries, because I follow what is good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O oh my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O oh Lord, my salvation. Again, the psalmist thinks about his enemies here. And we need to be careful that when we are in this situation, that we don't misidentify our enemies. That we don't misidentify friend from foe. If we're not careful, we can let the monster of pride start to well up. And we think that friends who are saying hard but necessary words, oh, you're my enemy. No, that is not the enemy. This is someone who's trying to help me and bring me back to God. We must not misidentify our foe. And as the psalmist ends, he has absolutely, fully, and finally despaired of himself as being the source of his own salvation. And that's right where he needs to be. He does not, however, despair of God 
and the salvation that God can afford him. Now, in this psalm, as I see it, there are no overt pleas for forgiveness. Make things right with me, Lord. This is more of just the bitter cry of, God, I need help. Help me. There is no one else to help. It's an awakening. The next psalm that we're now going to look at, now the psalmist comes to the petition. Let's go over to Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, indeed, as the very inscription, and in some versions, the first verse has it, this is after Nathan the prophet confronted him after he had sinned with Bathsheba. And this is a reminder to me that just because I might be brought by others to confront sin, just because the circumstances of life may seem to conspire to bring me to confront my sin, even though I personally had not yet, when I decide to listen to these forces for good, that does not nullify or water down the legitimacy of my repentance, as we see from David here. In Psalm 51, there is the plea for restoration, and the petition is, clean me, forgive me, and then renew me. Let's look at the first few verses. In verses 1 through 9, we have repeated pleas for forgiveness. Look in verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities." You see something here, and this is proof of the principle that we stated before, that the prayer itself is not merely this legal discharge of some procedure that God demands of me, but the prayer itself is a discipline in repentance. And what the psalmist is here doing in recounting his sin, describing the sin, and giving images for what sin is, is as if he is, yes, praying to God in this poetry, but he's also engaging in what I would call self-talk. And that is, he is reminding himself of the true nature of sin. And that's really what gets us into trouble in the first place. We don't understand sin for what it truly is. We don't see it for its destructive nature. And we see only the deception. Satan lays the trap for us. And that trap is to deceive us into thinking that sin is innocent. There won't be any consequences I will escape unscathed, and this won't impact others in any meaningful way. But he also gets us to see sin as, it's not just innocent, but it's elegant. It's something that's pleasurable. It's something that's fulfilling. It's desirable. And when he really gets his fangs stuck in us is when we think that the sin is needful. That this is intrinsic to my identity. I must have it. And all that this is, is a distortion of what God grants us legitimately in His will, and yet Satan is challenging us to view it differently. 
here the psalmist sees it, number one, as a stain on my soul. He describes it as a blot that has to be removed by the Lord. He also describes it as a, as a disease. That if I leave this alone, this is going to kill me spiritually. It's like a leprosy. And in fact, he uses the language of the law in verse 7. When he says, purge me with hyssop, you read through the law of Moses, and where do we see hyssop? Well, we see it in Leviticus chapter 14. It's part of the wood or the plant substance that would be brought forth and used in cleansing and purification after leprosy. But we also see it in Numbers chapter 19, that this is part of the purification that God provides. And perhaps this is not coincidence, this was also the, the, the plant that was the medium for spreading the blood on the doorpost of the Passover lamb. And so he pictures sin as a disease, as a stain. And if you look on to verse 5, he says, sadly, sin has come to define me. When he says, I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin my mother conceived me, he is not, as some of our friends saying, that I am depraved spiritually and I inherit my parents' sin. But no, just like in Psalm 58 in verse 3, this is Hebrew poetry, a powerful image to demonstrate that this has come to define him. It is not genetic, but it is as much a part of him now as if it were and had been genetic. And the psalmist now realizes that God is my only hope. As he says in verse 1, it's according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. So now if you go on to see verse 10 and following, the psalmist now will prevent, present his pleas for restoration. Now that the sin has been forgiven, it's been washed, the psalmist is not content simply to say, wow, I'm free of sin, doesn't this feel good? No, the psalmist now prays, Lord, complete the process, finish the job. Look on to, uh, to verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. So as the psalmist prays here, the psalmist is asking, I just don't want my guilt cleared. I want to be restored and strengthened so I don't make the same mistake and so that I can now be more like God. I pray not only that God approves of me, but that He is pleased with me and will walk with me once more. And I find personally so powerful the point he makes in verse 12. Restore me the joy of your salvation. You know, after we have sinned and we've tried to deal with it, we can feel just like we won't forgive ourselves. And we feel like I'm just a lost cause. God does not want depression for his forgiven children. Because that's the devil's plan. He wants the restoration of joy. Now I'm going to tell you something that if you find that your life is not right with the Lord tonight, if you don't do anything about it, you're going to keep feeling the same way and it won't get better. But what you can have tonight in exchange is joy. Am I going to go to bed tonight again laden down with guilt? Or will I take joy in my walk with God? If you look on down, during this plea of restoration, the psalmist acknowledges the fact that it's not sacrifice that does it. It's not just mere words. Look on to verse 16. 
For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. We need to remember that when we pray to God for forgiveness, it's not magic words that does it. You know, it's important that we say words. You know, Simon was told in Acts chapter 8, repent and pray God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Yes, there is prayer. There are words to be expressed. There are sentiments expressed in prayer. But the magic is not in the words. It's not so much that God hears the words. He sees the wounded heart. And this is the petition that God acknowledges. And then the psalmist recognizes that if I truly follow through on this business, and I do repent and turn things around, this will have an impact that goes beyond me. Look to verse 18. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifice of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. What the psalmist realizes is that I can be the start of a renewed zeal among God's people. And I can be a part, not just of myself glorying in the Lord and thanking Him, but I can join others who similarly have experienced the Lord's grace and forbearance. The third and final psalm that we're going to look at this evening is the follow-through on that. We've seen the awakening. We've seen the petition for restoration. And now we're going to see in Psalm 103 that forgiveness demands worship and thanksgiving. Psalm 103 is about gratitude. God's mercy demands my worship and my service. Let's start reading in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all, all your diseases who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The psalmist acknowledges, I owe God everything. Bless the Lord, my soul, but all that is within me. The psalmist realizes that everything I am and everything I hope to be is because of God and it's thanks to God. And because He has forgiven me and healed me, I now exist for His glory. If you notice what he says in verse 4, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, we've got a coronation in this verse. God crowns us. Now, hey, that sounds nice. God placing a crown on us, what's a crown for? A crown is for recognition, it's for honor, it's for acknowledgement. But here, it's not my own goodness, or even a sanctimonious humility that arises out of my state. It's loving kindness and tender mercies. What the psalmist realizes is what each of us should realize. Is that whenever I consider myself, or whenever other people look at me, it ought to be said about me that the best thing there is about me is God. And His mercy. The most wonderful thing, the best thing there is to say about me is that I am a forgiven man. And if you look on then, beginning in verse 6, 
The psalmist does not now think about, well, what a good, pious thing I have done that I have repented. It's not in honor of how humble or reformed I am. The praise now goes to God. And we need to remember something important here, brethren. Is that whenever there's a moment when I decide that I'm going to ask the Lord for forgiveness, and I'm going to seek Him and turn to Him, Satan doesn't leave me alone even there. Satan would have me now pat myself on the back. He would want me now want to go away and say, well, look what a good thing you've done. Look how low that you have brought yourself. Look how humble you are. You have been broken. And doesn't that feel good? Don't you see godliness in the brokenness? And if we're not careful, pride can still accompany us even in the moment that we think we're turning from temptation. The psalmist defends himself against that tendency by focusing on God. Look in verse 6. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. For He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Now when he mentions in verses 7 and 8, Moses, and then he cites the qualities of God, merciful and gracious. You know what this does for the Jewish mind steeped and saturated in the law? This is almost like a notation, a citation. It's almost as if he's saying, go back to Exodus. Do you remember that moment where the Lord gave the Ten Commandments? And the Israelites then, while Moses was up on the mountain, made a calf and they worshipped it and said, this is your God that brought you out of Egypt. And God said to Moses, get down. Leave me. Your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have sinned against me. Now get out of my way. I'm going to blast them off the face of the earth. I will annihilate them. And Moses said, remember the promises. Please fulfill those right now and not wait. What will the nation say? Remember your great name. And it wasn't the case that here is the Lord and He was ready to just really strike out and Moses now kind of pulls him back from the brink. No, it's the Lord allows Moses to participate as intercessor. So Moses will know and the people will know who it is that they are truly dealing with. That it's not so much even in His justice or His wrath that God's character is most glorified but in these moments of His mercy and forbearance. He then places Moses in the cleft of the rock. And as he passes by, he proclaims Jehovah. Jehovah God, merciful and gracious. How do I know that when I pray to God, that He's going to accept me? That He actually will forgive me? Look at what He did with Israel. This is His track record. And He will treat you no differently. Notice verses 11 through 14. When God forgives, we learn here that He does not do so grudgingly or partially, but completely and conclusively. Verse 11, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. You know how we often deal with forgiveness among one another? We just love it sometimes when someone comes to us and asks us to forgive them. 
because now you've put yourself in my pocket. I've got one up over you. And if in the future I need to bring that out and remind you of it and use that as a weapon against you in the future and leverage, I've got that. Well, sometimes we deal that way. Of course we wouldn't say it, but we act that way. God does not act that way. And God does not retain these things so that later He can bring it back and hold it over our heads. He forgives conclusively. God's character is contrasted with the frailty and the weakness of man. In verse 15, As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field. So he flourishes, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant to those who remember his commandment to do them. The psalmist then ends in verses 20 through 22 by returning to the beginning, in a sense. As we see in verse 20, he calls upon the angels of the Lord to bless the Lord. He calls upon all the host of the Lord who minister and do His pleasure. And you read throughout the different accounts of the Old Testament, who are the hosts of the Lord? Well, the same hosts of the Lord that were present when Elisha and the servant were there in the city and the servant was distraught over all the people of Syria who were around. And Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes. And he saw chariots and horsemen of fire. These are the hosts of the Lord. These are the same hosts of the Lord that minister are in His presence that Ezekiel saw and that John saw. Innumerable hosts that serve the Lord. They're all called upon to bless the Lord. And in verse 22, bless the Lord all His works in all places of His dominion. When you picture the rivers and the valleys and the mountains and the oceans and the planets and the swirling galaxies, places where no man has ever been or seen, the psalmist calls upon all of God's works to praise Him and to bless His name. And he ends with, bless the Lord, O my soul. The psalmist has gone cosmic here. He has gone through the hierarchy of creation from the angels who sit and behold His face down to His own inner unworthy soul. And He ends the psalm with the same words with which He began it. So that we have a never-ending and eternal cycle and ring of worship and of praise to the God who forgives. Now what do we gather from these three psalms? I have a very simple application. And that is, when we are praying to God and we are asking Him to forgive us, we can so easily fall into one of two extremes. And I want to spare just a moment to think about these two extremes. And these psalms help us avoid these extremes. One of the extremes that if we're not careful, we can fall into is that we view a prayer for forgiveness as a cold, robotic ritual that if I just say the right things and I just do the right things, well, their forgiveness of God is now going to come. And I'm not concerned about restoration. And we think that, you know, if I just say the words, you know, please forgive me and as I repent, help me to do better, help me to be stronger. And we don't mean it maliciously and we don't mean it to be deceptive. But have you ever prayed that? And then you realize 
maybe I said that in a prayer or I followed along with a man in the congregation who was saying that in a prayer. And I just asked God to forgive me and I just kind of let it roll off the tongue. I just let it kind of roll through my mind and I did not give it much thought. Or even worse, we engage in private self-deception and we ask the Lord to forgive us. And the next moment we turn around and we realize that I am doing, thinking, or putting myself in the same places that got me in this trouble in the first place. These psalms remind us of the true nature of sin. And the true nature of sin can be most clearly seen when it is put in contrast or silhouette against the one that we have sinned against. Do we realize that when I say, Lord, forgive me, I have sinned against you. I ask for your forgiveness. What we're telling God is, you, the God of Genesis 1, the God who willed and spoke the worlds into existence, the God whose power is so vast beyond my comprehension that non-existence obeyed Him. Now wrap your mind around that. Things that did not exist obeyed Him by coming into existence. He has set up the natural order, the spiritual order, and at the basis and the root of every sin is when I have asked God to sit off of His throne and I have dared to put myself there. That I have so judged that I can be the God of my life and my own self-destiny. What we have done when we ask the Lord to forgive us, we have challenged the divine order and we have insulted the One who made all things by the breath of His mouth. It's no small thing we ask. But we also realize that when I sin, who is it that I have sinned against? It reminds me as the psalmist has repeated in different ways, he has acknowledged the holiness of God. And the passage that most, I think, clearly establishes for us, God's holiness, we won't turn there, but it's what Isaiah saw in chapter 6. When he saw the Lord on His throne, high and lifted up, the train of His robe filled the temple, and these spiritual beings were flying about and proclaiming a thrice holy God, the whole earth is full of His glory. And as Isaiah is witnessing this, he says, I'm a dead man, I'm undone. Because what he realized is that he had no business being in existence while this God is in existence. That's holiness. And we realize that sin is a stain that jeopardizes my ability and standing in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. But sin is also something else for someone who is a Christian. And this is especially true when we have let ourselves get into a pattern, get into a settled lifestyle of sin. And this may be true even though we might be coming here into a place of worship. We might be considered an active member of a church, and yet, behind the scenes, we're not what other people think we are. What have I done? God pictured His covenant with Israel as a marriage. And as we read in the prophet Hosea, God wanted the prophet to marry a wife who would be unfaithful to him so that not only the prophet, but the people would begin to understand in the smallest of ways how God feels about it. 
and you'll read through a chapter like Ezekiel 16, which is one of the most explicit and uncomfortable chapters in all the Bible, where God is picturing and portraying the sin that His people have committed. When I realize that God has set me up and purified me and brought me into that body by which He calls it the bride of His Son, the holy bride that He has cleansed with water and purification. And when He has so deemed me fit to be His temple, when I have rebelled against God and I have knowingly chosen other than Him, I have invited a competitor to my spiritual spouse into my very home and I have committed spiritual adultery in the very presence of the one that has given all for me. And then I turn around and say, hey, I'm sorry. Make it right, please. Now I'm going to be on my business. i got to go. Unfeeling prayers for forgiveness are an insult to God. And what we're doing when we pray to Him and ask for His forgiveness, God has pictured this also in the setup of His tabernacle and the temple. When, as we read in Leviticus 16, once a year, the high priest will go in and he will then light and burn the incense that then goes beyond the veil. And then he will take aside that veil and he will go in and the picture there is he is now entering the presence of the Almighty before the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, where God descends and lowers himself to deal with his people. But that high priest dare not go on upon pain of life without blood. And when I ask the Lord to forgive me, I am opening up the veil and I'm going in before His presence and the picture that God has said is do not come beyond the veil without blood. And when I do so, I am yielding and presenting before Him not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of His own precious Son. Have you ever stopped to realize that when I ask God to forgive me, I am asking Him yet once again to look back to the horror of the cross and to see His own Son writhing there for me. And I'm asking Him, see that again. Acknowledge that again. Accept that as something pleasing to you again. And if I do that just haphazardly and carelessly, Prepare to meet your God. Unfeeling prayers for forgiveness are an intrusion into the most holy place of God. But that's not how we just want to leave it. There's the other extreme. And that other extreme is that we feel so unworthy, so undeserving, and so just disgusting in sin that God doesn't want to have anything to do with me. I dare not even go in beyond the veil. I dare not. He won't accept me anymore. And we just decide that we're going to lay down and die. This is going to be it. I'm lost for eternity. God won't have me back. Now, Sometimes what that can ultimately be is an excuse. It can be the reason that we look to that we don't exert the effort. We don't make the painful, difficult decisions to change. And that kind of becomes our excuse. Well, God won't have me. I'm unworthy. And that just becomes our, our excuse. 
but it can also be the case that we truly feel like, I'm just junk, and I'm worthless to God. I'm unsalvageable. Look at what I've done to him and his people. Look how what I've destroyed. I'm, I'm worth nothing. No, even in that, God will forgive you. God is the one who sent his son, and his son was dying for the very ones who nailed him on the cross. The very ones who came by and spat on him and ridiculed him. These were the very ones he was dying for. You are not a lost cause. You're not junk. Your soul is worth more than the world itself. And if there was no one else that the cross was needed for but for you, Jesus still would have done all of it for you. Never think that you are beyond the grace of God. It cannot be that your sin, as it is, as terrible as it is, your sin does not overwhelm the Maker. Your sin is not greater to overpower the One who gave His life for you. It ultimately comes down to faith. Having faith in the Lord and having a little bit of faith in yourself that you can walk with Him and that He can make you what you ought to be. These prayers and these psalms for forgiveness. The remedy in all of this is remember the cross. Jesus also, if we will think about it, pronounces as blessed not those who are self-righteous, not those who have never made a mistake, not those who I've never had to come forward. That's, that's beyond me. I deal with my sins in private. I've never had to deal with anything like that. You know, look at me. No, this is not about that. Who did Jesus say was blessed? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And the idea there of a hungering and thirsting for righteousness is not just a very generic yeah, I like my Bible reading, and I like spiritual things, and I like being in settings like this. I just really hunger for that. That's not so much what he means. There, Jesus is teaching about what righteousness truly is, and it is the awareness that on my own, I am not capable of saving myself. I need the righteousness that the Lord provides through the blood of His Son. And then as he pronounces blessed, those who have been now transformed and made useful by those recognitions, now you can be pure. Now you can be someone who is merciful. Now you can be a peacemaker. Now you can give your life so that others can be glorified. So that the Lord can be glorified in your persecution. Jesus pronounces those who are blessed, those who recognize their spiritual state and desperation and depend on Him for forgiveness. So your prayer for the Lord's favor and forgiveness. Jesus once told a parable. He said two men went down to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, adulterers, or like this tax collector here. I fast, I pay my tithes. But the tax collector would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. But he struck himself on the breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
Jesus said that one went down to his house, justified rather than the other. And so as we, and forget about anyone else, as we, as I, come before the Lord, and I come before His throne, and I ask Him for forgiveness, I have a choice. Am I going to do this out of hypocrisy? Am I going to do this carelessly? Am I going to do this because I think that this will deal with my guilt for just a moment, and I can now move on with my life? Or am I offering to the Lord a broken and contrite heart? And am I willingly surrendering myself to the Lord so that His power can make me what I ought to be? Be merciful to me, a sinner. And what we want to do at the conclusion of this service is we make the call and we make the announcement, and it's a good one, that there is forgiveness for you. There is mercy for each of us. And if it's the case that you sitting there during this song, maybe others are aware of things going on in your life, and maybe it's not the time to come forward in a public way, but you know your life is not right with the Lord. That's what you need to be worrying about. That's what I need to be thinking about, is making my heart right with God. But by all means, if there's someone here this evening that wants to make it known that you're making your life right with the Lord, that you're throwing yourself upon His mercy and seeking the blood of His Son for forgiveness. He wants that more than everything. Every thought and bit of His will is focused on you and bringing you back to Him. And He waits with open arms. If it's the case this evening that you wish to become a Christian and His child and to give obedience to His Son, we certainly would welcome that as well. And if in any way we can encourage you, Please come forward and make that known while we stand and sing together.